Hey friends, and welcome to True Crime Storytime. I'm your host, Ivana Estelle, and it's just me this week. Last week, I had my bestie on, Camille, and she was an amazing co-host. Don't worry, if you enjoyed that setup, there will be similar episodes like that in the future. In this case today, you're going to hear a lot, okay? And I mean a lot, including statements like ritual killings and charred body. It's a major trigger warning murder that occurs, but also we will talk about domestic violence internationally. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men, and that's in the U.S. alone. In fact, in general, one in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner contact sexual violence, and or intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, and post-traumatic stress disorder. This season is about relationships, but this episode is about abuse. Carabelle Mokoena was born on March 27, 1995. Her outside matched her inside. She just had this sweet essence about her. With these large brown eyes, small nose, and caramel skin, she lived her entire life in South Africa. Life for Carabelle was full. Her mother Lorraine, also known as Lolo, and her father Thabang were really close. And she grew up with her siblings as well. They were just your average family. Carabo was the middle child with an older sister and younger brother, and she got along really well with her siblings. I definitely have a soft spot for that. My sisters are twins, and they're my very best friends. So Carabo's connection with her family is something that I find incredibly precious. It also makes the story fiercely gut-wrenching. At the time, she and her sister Bentley shared a room in their house, and this probably helped shape Carabo, who was known to be caring and considerate. She worked well with others, and this benefited her. She graduated from Hill High School in 2014 and enrolled in Regenesis Business School. I'm not as familiar with how the school system works in South Africa. In fact, if I have any international listeners that could message me, that would be great because I would love to know more. But from the research I did, both Hill High School and Regenesis Business School are really good schools. And with Carabo wanting to pursue business, I know firsthand that it takes a lot of work and can be exhausting. I know I've complained on this podcast more than once about my grad school journey that I'm currently on. Worth it, but a lot of work. Carabo was also obtaining her aviation license from AAFSA to go with her education. By aviation, I'm talking about pilots. Baby, she was going to fly planes. I mean, it does not get any more dope than that. Carabo was also very passionate about women's rights and children's rights in Johannesburg. This is usually the part where I describe the environment and setting. And honestly, South Africa is beautiful. My father went when I was a kid and I remember how impactful it was for him. Actually, I impulsively bought a ticket to South Africa right before the pandemic started and I had to like get a refund. It was a whole thing. But today I need to talk about gender-based violence in South Africa. So pull over if you're driving, 
pause whatever boring task your boss has you doing, or take a break from cleaning that sink. I know the bleach is giving you a headache anyway. We need to chat for a sec. South Africa is known for having an archaic and hands-off view on women's rights, particularly when it comes to domestic violence. In fact, at the time, Caraba was volunteering at Frida Hartley Shelter. The shelter is specifically for women and children, and it takes in homeless people who have endured neglect, trauma, abuse, or anything of that sort. It's for those who have lost their jobs or are struggling to provide for their families or themselves. Their services include three meals a day, a monthly set of toiletries, accommodations for about six months, and free job training skills. I'm actually going to include the link to the shelter in my show notes for this episode so you can be able to check them out, volunteer, or donate. Caraba was fiercely passionate about women's rights and helping women and children, which again makes this story all the more heartbreaking. See, Caraba would have speeches, talks, hold sessions, talking about abusive relationships to those in the shelter. It goes to show just how quickly things can change for someone, and we never should judge ourselves or anyone else in a situation that drastically changes. Carabo wanted her own charity. She wanted to support women who would find themselves in domestic violence relationships. It was part of the reason why she worked so hard, volunteered so much, and made sure to stay close with those in her circle. Carabo had a dream, she had a goal, and she had a plan. And in October of 2016, all of that changed when Caribou met Sandile Montosi. Sandile was a Forex trader in the city. For those of you who don't know what Forex is, it's a multi-level marketing company that deals with trading. I have a lot of opinions on this company alone. I almost wanted to name this episode after this company, but I don't want to get sued. The bulk of their work is recruiting others to join into their group to trade. Sandalay was originally from Ember Lanley. He attended school in Sukunda, which is kind of far from Johannesburg, actually. He studied graphic design, and it's not really clear how long he stuck with that before he got into trading. Sandalay lived a flashy lifestyle. At the time, he was 29, and a lot of his pictures were posted with Mercedes-Benz, Audis, BMWs. He was a showman, or flexer. He posted a lot online about his lavish lifestyle. Now, here's the thing. He could have been making money, but a lot of what comes with this Forex trading is promoting your wealth and claiming it is due to working for Forex. Some people are successful at it, and others kind of realize it's really difficult and doesn't really make much money unless you're like a top seller. Sandile seemed to be doing well for himself. People considered him charismatic and to be likable. He was known to be really religious as well. At the time, he was 29 and single, but he had had his fair share of relationships before. In fact, he was a father to three children, but he appeared to be estranged from his wife, and there isn't much about their marriage. Apparently, his wealth had started at Forex, and then he opened his own binary options trading company that was called Trillion Dollar Legacy. I feel like what I'm describing is this young guy who has a lot going for him, but honestly, it's making my stomach turn. Because to me, he seems like a fraud. To me, he seems like one of those people that you see online that flex all their money, that spend hours taking pictures to make everything look perfect to get you to wish you had their life. When on the inside, they're just empty. 
He just kind of seems like the type of guy that if he asked for my number, I'd say no. He just seems like such a head ass. Okay, and so for those of you that don't know what that means, it's a New Jersey, New York term for someone that has their head up their ass. Pretty self-explanatory. I like to keep it pretty crime junkies PG on this podcast, but I'm sorry. Researching him, I had the biggest eye roll after eye roll because he is just so corny. Like his videos are so... They're one of those videos that are like, oh, just do all of this and maybe even pay me and I'll teach you how to be just as rich and successful as me. Like, thanks, but no thanks. You're a total schemer. And Carabo was way too good for him. I don't care what photos he was posting. She had so much going for herself. And to be young and 22, maybe she was just a little bit impressionable. By the way, he displayed himself. But I know that she would have learned as she developed on her own and have her own independence, how much of a fraud, whack-ass person this guy is. Okay, that was a read. Let me continue. Sandalay lived in a really nice apartment, one of those high-rises that are covered in glass. He wore all designer clothes. He was tall, yada, 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 bullshit, bullshit. But underneath all of that, Sandalay was actually a fraud. He basically would charge people in day passes anywhere from $400 to $6,000 in order to like learn from him and get insider trading, which also isn't that illegal. All his friends had matching designer cars. It's all really gross to stomach, but basically his flashy lifestyle helped him make money to continue living his flashy lifestyle. But for Carabelle, she saw past that. She liked his morals and work ethic, and Sandalay seemed to love Carabo. He loved how strong she was, all of her goals, and the two started dating exclusively immediately. And I'm sure the lavish life wasn't so bad either. Carabo had gone from living in her shared bedroom with her older sister to spending the night in a huge apartment and driving around in a really nice car. So I get it. If you're falling in love with someone and they're helping you live comfortably, it may be hard to see some red flags. Like the fact that Carabo moved in with Sandalay a month after they began dating. From the outside, the couple looked like a power couple. And Sandalay's business and Carabo being in school, it just seemed like a good match. They both were attractive and at least looked good together. But looks can be deceiving. Remember I mentioned Sandalay being a fraud and a liar? See, after moving in together, the couple began to fight. Frequently. Just before the holiday season, Carabo had actually confided in her friends that Sandalay had completely lost his temper and smashed her phone and pushed her into a wall. I think at that moment she knew this was a bad situation that she'd fallen in, but she was in love with him. And they had kind of moved incredibly quickly. Plus, this wasn't the man that she had met. That man had to exist somewhere, right? Maybe this was a one-time thing. Or maybe it was holiday stress. Carabo chalked it up to that. But in the months to follow, things wouldn't get better. See, by March, Carabo would regularly send her friends photos of bruises that she'd gotten from Sandalay, grabbing her, hating her, and he was also emotionally abusive. He would just say the most disgusting, horrid things to her. On the morning of March 27th, Carabo's birthday, her family and friends reached out. She received dozens of messages and calls, people wishing her a happy 22nd birthday. But she didn't answer a single one. 
and that is most likely because she was in the hospital. See, she and Sandile had gotten into another argument. Not only that, but this time he smashed her phone to the point where it was broken, so even if those messages were getting through, she would never get to see them. Eventually, she was able to call her family and tell them where she was. She had been beaten on her birthday and was placed in the hospital. Caribou confided to her mother, Lorraine, that she'd been abused, and it had been going on for a while. The two decided to go to the police and report the abuse, but to Caribou's surprise, when she got there, Sandalay had been there earlier, and he filed his own protective order against her. I have no words. I mean, he is the worst. He is horrible. And at least at this point, Caribou realized she needed to get out of the situation. She left him that day. She moved back in with her family and things seemed to be getting better. I mean, she'd escaped, right? Unfortunately, no. If that were the case, we wouldn't be covering this story this episode. A couple weeks had gone by. Things seemed to calm down. So much so that so much so that the police force had thrown out both complaints against Sandalay and Caribou. They considered it a lover's quarrel, which is kind of why this case ends up being so infamous. The police watched a woman who had been abused, beaten, and hospitalized and deemed her attack something minor that just happens in relationships. I can tell you it doesn't matter if it's your best friend, significant other, parents. I don't care. The moment that a person puts their hands on you to try to cause you bodily harm, you are being attacked, you are the victim, and you do not deserve what happened to you to be swept under the rug in any way, shape, and form. You know, I go hard for you guys, I love you guys, and that will not fly. Caribou was starting to feel better, and she was determined to find a way to feel like herself again. November through March had been a volatile blur, and she just wanted to get back to doing things that she loved. She went out for a night in Sanditon at a nightclub with a couple girlfriends, and things started off pretty decently. The girls had drinks, they danced. If I were there, we would have ordered a hookah, but that's for another day. And who shows up? Sandalay. Now, listen, it isn't clear why he and his friends were at the same club. Johannesburg is huge. There is a lot of nightlife, so they could have picked any place. But at the same time, the club happened to be a couple of blocks away from his apartment. And we have no idea whether the two were communicating, whether he was stalking Caribou at this time, or if it was honestly a coincidence. So I can't make any allegations other than chalking it up to some sick, twisted fate that they both ended up in the same club that night. The two, they hit it off again. They spent the night with one another and Sandile was able to convince Caribou that things were going to be different this time. In fact, on April 27th, 2018, the pair had really made amends and Caribou called her mother Lorraine. But this time, instead of saying something had happened, much to Lorraine's dismay, Caribou was informing her mom that she was going to go out that night with Sandile and she might even stay at his apartment again, depending on how late they'd be out. 
Now, Lorraine wasn't the only one trying to deter Caribou from this. Her friends begged her to leave this guy alone. Her siblings, anyone who was aware of the situation was trying to get her to stay away from this guy. He was dangerous, and it kind of makes me think back to that wife that he didn't have contact with and those kids that he barely was around. What was the reason for that? Could have anything to do with what Caribou was experiencing? I know during these types of stories, it's really easy to get frustrated, especially because you know how much Caribou was liked and loved by her friends and family and the life that she would ultimately have was taken away from her. However, blaming the victim usually comes from the standpoint of not understanding. Take someone that you really, really love, someone that you enjoy spending time with. Now, add on the fact that they've slowly started to put their hands on you. Or they get really angry and say really terrible things. Now, add on the fact that they apologize profusely and try to make it up to you. Now, add on the fact that they won't let you leave. They guilt you. They threaten their life or your own. Or your family. When things are good, they're good. When they're great, they're great. But when they're horrible, they're detrimental. That's a lot to carry. It's a lot to balance. It's a lot to think about. So I want to work on giving grace. Caribou deserves that. She was smart. She knew the warning signs. She was a spokeswoman in the shelter. But when you're in this type of relationship, this guy is older than her. It's easy to get swept up or maybe think that things will change, that things will get better. I've never been in a physically abusive relationship myself, but I do know what it's like dealing with someone, whether romantically or as a friend, and they probably shouldn't be in my life. Yet, I keep entertaining it, thinking that things will eventually get better, and they rarely do. Sandalite and Caribou went out to a nightclub that night. They were drinking, and one thing led to another. What was first a romantic, flirty evening turned into a heated argument within the club. Not only that, but the two apparently started physically fighting in the club, and Sandalite was really tall, okay? Caribou was smaller. So... Them fighting, it's kind of like to what degree. I highly doubt that they were both equally throwing blows. I have a feeling that Sandalay was becoming very, very inappropriate, violent, and aggressive. Yet for some reason, the two calmed down and they left together that night to go back to Sandalay's apartment. At 2.48 a.m. in the Sky Apartments, you see a young woman with a pink hoodie on and gray sweatpants and a short, blunt haircut. She still has her makeup on from the night, and she's with a young man with a taller build, and his face is not really shown on camera, but hers is, and she looks sad. They're waiting in the glossy hallway for one of the mirrored elevators to open. That footage would be the last scene of Caribou alive. Lorraine had spoken to her daughter the night before, but it was brief, and the majority of it, Caribou was whispering and she said that she couldn't talk so the next morning Lorraine called her daughter again and didn't get an answer she sent text messages and still no response this is when Lorraine had become increasingly concerned see had they talked the night before normally maybe she wouldn't have been as nervous and caught mother's intuition but Lorraine just knew something was wrong Lorraine called Sandalay to see what was going on, and he sounded pretty surprised. He explained that at one point, Caribou had left that night and that he hadn't heard from her either. Caribou's sister went to the apartment complex herself. If Sandalay said that she'd left, 
Maybe the front desk knew something. They said that they hadn't seen Caribou leave, but they did see something that just seemed strange. One of the cleaners found Caribou's ID and passport in a trash bag. This was not okay. If Caribou left, why would she not have her ID or passport? The family immediately went to the Johannesburg Central Police Station and reported Caribou missing. The police were pretty slow moving. They didn't have much of a reaction and it took them about two days to even process the file. Time was clearly not on the family's side and it kind of seemed like the police weren't either. This case actually got incredibly popular through social media. Oftentimes with social media booming a topic, it gets instant publicity. Every family of a missing person or someone who's been unjustly murdered knows that getting the media on your side is important. Unfortunately, the police respond when the pressure is on. By April 29th, Caribou's friends had been posting all over the internet about their missing friend, and Lorraine reached out to Sandalay again. It had been a couple days since she had heard from her daughter, and honestly, Sandalay seemed... He seemed weird. Like, you would think he would communicate with the family a little bit had he heard anything or knew anything, but him going virtually silent, that was suspicious. And here is where the already obviously blaring target on Sandalay's back gets even larger. See, he tells Lorraine that he doesn't know where Caribou is, but that he didn't kill her. What? Why would that be your response? And that's not all. Friends had visited Sandalay's apartment since Caribou had gone missing, and that wasn't that surprising. He often posted on social media about hanging out with his friends, but here's where it got sketchy, because his friends noticed that the carpet had a large wet patch on it. Like someone was cleaning, but only in one specific area. He brushed it off to spilling something, but it just didn't sit right with his friends. I'd imagine they swiftly left. On April 30th, the police finally were getting involved and they went over to Sandley's apartment with Caribou's mother to interview him. Now, I'm not really sure if this is a norm, Usually, the family is not as involved, but considering the delay that this even took, I don't really have any complaints right now. Sandalay wasn't home, and when they called his cell phone, he explained that he would be back earliest in the afternoon. It kind of seemed like he was preparing to give the police a runaround. And that isn't surprising. Even Caribou's dad had a decent relationship with Sandalay at one point. And he'd reached out wanting to meet up with Sandalay, but Sandalay would lie and say that he had a funeral or he couldn't meet. The police began collecting as much evidence as they could. Caribou didn't have any enemies. She didn't have anyone that she would have hung out with outside of her friends. And they all verified that they hadn't seen her, especially not since the 27th when she was with Sandalay. There was no sign of her planning on leaving. And I mean, come on, we know that she didn't even have her ID. Police received CCTV footage of the apartment complex. And this is where the full body chills comes in. See, at about 9.57 p.m. the next day, Sandalay is seen wheeling out a trash bin. And this trash bin isn't like the one that you have in your apartment. I'm talking about those huge ones that you see to take out recycling or a lot of trash at once. He wheels it out and walks right through the glass doors as if he's going to the garbage. 
At 10.07 p.m., you still see him in different angles with the trash bin. And just a few minutes later, you see him in his car driving out of the garage. I can tell you in a flashy apartment like that, you don't have to take out your own trash. So what would be the need for that large of a bin to go from your apartment to your car? When police finally sit down with Sandley, he explains that he actually thought Caribou had taken a flight to the UK. Before, he had told friends that she left that night and he had no idea where she was. But now his story had changed, which we know was a stupid move from a stupid man because there was no way she had gone on a flight without her passport, which Caribou's sister found and reported to police. The police pressured on to Sandalay. They knew that Caribou had not left. There was no footage of her ever exiting the apartment. They saw the footage and they needed answers. And eventually... He confessed. Well, sort of. There's a district in Johannesburg called Bramley. It's pretty far from the Sand and Sky apartments. It's more secluded. There's more brush, a little bit lower income. And the place that Sandalay had decided to leave what was left of Caribou's body. Yes, you heard me correctly. What was left? Listener discretion for this next part. Caribou's body was so badly damaged that it was hard to identify her. It took a couple weeks to get DNA to confirm that it was her. See, she'd been found in a ditch, but was basically unrecognizable. Actually, Caribou's body had been discovered by a passerby who thought that the body was a burnt mannequin. That's how different she looked. But the truth was far worse. Sandalay had stuffed Caribou's body into that trash bin and rolled it out into his gold BMW and drove to his family's home in Lyndhurst. While out, he picked up a tire, acid, and a container, then drove to a gas station to buy petrol. He then drove to Bramley and doused Caribou's body in the liquids to be burned and left. At some time during the day, Sandalay was also seen with two other women holding plastic bags with sheets. I don't know what that was about. It isn't clear if they knew what happened or if they knew what they were carrying, and those women have never been revealed. Sandalay was immediately arrested, and he had a lot to say. First, he said that the police were pinning this on him and that he was completely innocent. Then he denied making any statements admitting to what he did to Caribou. Finally, he landed on a very interesting story. He claimed that on April 28th, the night he found Caribou's body in his apartment, she apparently stabbed herself and committed suicide. He went on to explain that if anyone found her dead, that he would be arrested, so he decided to get rid of her body. He claimed that Caribou was cheating on him and dating Nigerian men, and that these men would give her about $100,000 per month. He says that she confided in him that the men were the ones that were hitting her and that she was actually pregnant at one point and had miscarried. Sandalay also claimed that at one point Caribou had been raped and was angry and depressed and had attempted suicide a couple times while they were dating. He also downplayed their relationship, that apparently they were on and off and they both had sex with other people. He said that he'd also broken up with her and told her he didn't want to be with her hours before she committed suicide. When he found her bleeding and dead, instead of calling for help, he panicked and disposed of Caribou's body. Now, people love claiming others are narcissists. It's actually really annoying 
Because I feel like we throw that word around, that an empath, like give me a break. But I think that is exactly what this guy is. I'm about to make you hate him just as much as I do. How dare he say these obviously disgusting and evil lies about Caribou, especially after murdering her. In fact, he never admits to the fact that he was the one to stab her and that she'd been stabbed a couple times, once in the very least in the neck, which is where she bled out and died. And there was only footage of Sandalay leaving his apartment for about four minutes from 6.22 to 6.26 p.m., which means that she would have only had four minutes to kill herself. And when this case goes to court, it's proven even more so. See, the prosecution believes that Sandalay planned the murder, and he knew exactly what to do from getting a bin to the correct items for cleaning and covering the body to throwing away her personal documents. And had she really been suicidal, why wouldn't he call the front desk or the police? He immediately went to getting rid of her body. And all of the things that he described, the negative things he said about her partying, being abusive, it actually described him. See, on social media, he would consistently talk about God while also promoting his lifestyle. But friends knew him to talk badly about other people of color, to be a partier himself, and to use drugs. The lead investigator in this case, Captain Mallet Fetsane Radebi, described Sandalay as a disguised devil. He didn't believe he was a psychopath, but he knew something was very, very wrong with this person. When this case went to trial, there really wasn't any remorse. In fact, Sandalay acted like a victim instead of acknowledging his wrongs, and he didn't show any remorse for what happened. There was also a brief belief that this was a ritualistic killing, probably because it was so well planned, or because of the fact that Sandalay claimed that the two had actually done a blood ritual in order to get great wealth and fortune. And I'm not talking about Megan Fox, MGK drinking each other's blood for whatever reason. This was apparently some spiritual ritual between Caribou and Sandalay. But there was a clause in the ritual that if the couple were to break up, Caribou would have to die. She would have to sacrifice in order for Sandalay to continue on with his success. Although that didn't actually make it to court, prosecutors believe that this was a premeditated attack on Caribou and that Sandalay had no intention of letting her leave that apartment alive. The footage of Sandalay in court is pretty animated. There are people on either side, either taking photos or sitting and watching as he enters the courtroom. He's wearing a sleek gray suit and a designer belt and honestly looks pretty relaxed and confident that he's actually going to get away with this. He was charged with premeditated murder, defeating the ends of justice and assault with intent to cause harm. Sandalay didn't bring up the ritual explanation in court. In fact, he basically focused on the story that he had found Caribou dead in his apartment and disposed of her body. On the third day of trial, he actually went up and he was wearing this thick leather jacket. He looked casual and continued to spew more lies. He explained that he was only guilty of trying to help build a person, that he wanted the best for Caribou, and that they were really volatile and it was a really violent relationship that was mainly her doing. He explained that he was innocent and had nothing to do with her death. I inspired, I just 
I was the one who was helping us set up NGOs. I had experience setting up NGOs. I tried to be a positive influence in her life, but it's unfortunate that I came into her life at a point where things were already bad. So yeah, maybe I'm guilty of trying to build a person and being the last one there when she collapsed, you know. So the, the truth of the matter is I, I, I tried my best. Whatever. Screw this guy. Judge Johnson requested that the CCTV be explained to show the timeline of Caribou's murder. The prosecution was able to do just that. They used the timeline of Caribou going to the apartment after 2 a.m., but there being no footage of her leaving, only footage of Sandalay going in and out of his apartment a couple times, including the time that he had the trash bin late at night and the time that he had bags of sheets. They also explained that the excuse of Caribou going on a trip to London was a clear lie and that if Sandalay was so innocent, why would he need to lie? Why would he make it seem like she disappeared? On May 3rd, 2018, an incredibly crowded courtroom waited the news of Sandalay's fate. There were camera crews all lined up on the sides of the room. Every seat was filled in the pew and the judge found Sandalay guilty on all counts. It was clear that night that after assaulting Caribou at the club, the couple went home and that is where Sandalay stabbed her to death multiple times in the chest and neck, then collected the body, put it in a dumpster bin, drove to his parents' house, switched cars so he would not be noticed, drove to the empty location, covered Caribou's body in gasoline, set her on fire, and left. He was sentenced to 32 years in prison, five years for assault, four years for defeating the ends of justice, and 30 years for murder. This all happened rather quickly, and I'm not necessarily clear on why he only received 32 years or even the math on that. He also will have to live out the entire sentence without a chance of parole. He will be in his 60s when he is let out of jail. Though, of course, the idea that he will ever even see the light of day again is frustrating in itself. Judge Johnson described him as cold-hearted. Sandalay acted like a celebrity. I mean, from his lavish outfits in court to the basic way he carried himself, it really honestly is disgusting. Judge Johnson said that he deserved the harshest punishment and he should be ashamed of himself. He was nothing more than a calculated evil monster. So let's go back to the rant I had during the beginning of the episode about this trading and Sandalay being a fraud. There were over a hundred people to come forward to report how he had been scamming them for money. Not only that, but it turns out that he was in thousands of dollars worth of debt. Time was catching up to him. The case ended up being the trailblazer for a lot of people coming out and speaking against domestic violence, specifically abuse against women. There were a lot of protests and rallies specifically during this trial itself. I mean, every single day, there were protesters outside calling for justice for Carabo and justice for all women. In 2016, it was reported that every four hours, a woman is killed in South Africa, and at least half of them were murdered by an intimate partner. This is according to the website Africa Check. And the year before that, in 2015, the global rate of femicide was about 2.4 per 100,000 women. But in South Africa, it was nearly four times that, at 9.6 per 100,000 women. There were friends on both sides of the couple that noticed violence happening in their relationship. 
Sandile himself had male friends that had said that they'd witnessed him beating and kicking Caribou, and no one said anything. Caribou's friends tried their hardest to get her to leave Sandile, but maybe reporting it to the police? I don't know, could have helped. But could it really? Because the police end up throwing out both files anyway. It just kind of seems like a loss all around. I want to add that the premeditation in this case was actually deemed by the meticulous actions afterwards. Judge Johnson stated that there wasn't enough to prove that Sandalay had planned to kill Caribou, but he did do whatever he could to cover it up. Caribou's family lived through this hell, and life has gone on since then, but it doesn't mean that it's gotten easier. Caribou should be here. She should have her own business. She would be my age if she were still alive. Her family talks about how they were unable to eat for days while looking for her, and they couldn't sleep. It was all just too painful. But Caribou's death wasn't in vain. Her case alone sparked an outrage in South Africa, and the social media attention made this international case known worldwide. In fact, it was my dad who sent me the link to look into it. These cases, of course, need to end, but the only way for us to get there is to talk about them when they happen. Caribou was a young black woman with dreams and goals, and I know I say that almost every single case I cover, but that's because it's true. These people's lives were taken from them, and to have this narcissistic, evil garbage of a human being have the nerve to lie and try to paint a picture of Caribou that is untrue is the last thing that her family, friends, or anyone going through this type of situation needs. So I want to leave you with these words from Caribou about her passions, speaking to those women in the shelter. This is who Caribou was, and that deserves to be displayed. In the words that we speak to ourselves and the words that we speak to people. And the, because words are, they create. Words are creative forces. God just only had to say, let there be light, and there was light. You can sit there and say, I will never amount to anything. Indeed, you are right. Because what a man thinketh, so is he. You will never amount to anything? You're very right. No one can even confuse you because these are the words that you are confessing. It's the law of attraction. I'll sit here and say, I want a very tall, the sound, I want a very tall husband. I will get that. That's what I want. Everything in me even exudes that energy to say, I want a very tall man. That's exactly what I will get. You find women that say, I've never dated a short man before. Why? Because there's no short man in the world? Because you have channeled your energy in such a way that you only want tall men. Mm. You want to eat. That's why I asked you, Dr. Mego, earlier, what do you want sitting there right now? If not. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. We are now at the part where I give you a true crime fact for the dinner table, on a date, or just to know. So, have you ever heard of the word malice aforethought? Me neither. It's basically the prior intention to kill or cause harm to a victim. It establishes the mindset that distinguishes between the charge of manslaughter or murder. It is different from premeditation in that it does not refer to a coherent plan of action. I wonder if this term was thrown around during the trial. It would make sense. This episode was brought to you by myself, Ivana Estelle. I don't have any ads yet, but that is fine. We are manifesting more ads, more followers on my social, and more interactions. Listen, I am super lame on social media. I don't know how people are so good at getting followers and stuff. 
but they are, and I love every single person that I interact with and that I get to meet on social media or through this podcast. Like I've just met some awesome people and I really, really want to meet more. So please, if you haven't already, give me a like, give me a rating, five stars, please, for your girl, and a follow. Hit me up on Facebook because I'm there now. Oh my gosh, True Crime Storytime with Ivana Estelle. And Instagram because I want to chat with you guys and let me know what you think. You can follow me at Ivana Estelle regular, which is one N, and you can do at Ivana Estelle True Crime. That's on Instagram and on TikTok at Ivana Estelle True Crime. As always, safe journey. Keep walking the light. Until next time, with love, Ivana Estelle. Mm-hmm.